0: So yesterday I uh, got up in the morning and uh, I happened to walk out and my wife handed me this little box. Mm-mm-mm. Bright's chocolates. Dark. My favorite. Yes. And uh, of course I had to try one out for breakfast, right? Um, because that's what you do, right? If for no other reason than you're trying to to make the the giver feel good. That's what I tell myself. Uh, and so, anyway, I really, really enjoyed that uh, that little gift from from Nancy. And uh, then, of course, uh, you know, if you. Uh, or one of those people who was able to enjoy Valentine's in some way. I thought about posting the picture, since I, I took her out to uh, Fumi's yesterday, posting a picture of what we what we ate, but then you'd want me to shorten the sermon as your salivary glands started doing their thing. Uh, yes, mango basil stir fry. Mmm, 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 it was good. Uh, and then, of course... Uh, I had a little gift for her, but it wasn't edible. It was, uh, my, my, my wife loves to plant things, and so I had a gift certificate from Wenzel's for her. But if you're thinking about Valentine's, and you're thinking about doing things to help people remember, you know, your love for them, and, and it's one of the beauties of Valentine's, is giving you an opportunity, traditionally, just giving you an opportunity to celebrate your love for someone else, then I am glad you had that opportunity, right? And, and the incredible part of it is, is a lot of those things, mere, mere small gifts and stuff, they, they are symbolic to, to many of us about, about to your care uh, for someone else. Today, I even extended that in just the tiniest little way. Uh, yesterday, I went shopping at Walmart And I decided it was time to to add another box of dry cereal to the pantry. And I thought, Cheerios. I'm in the mood for Cheerios. Not the sugary kind. I like the straight-up, heart-healthy, full-grain oat variety, right? And I get there, and in a big family size, I discover that for this season, half of the Cheerios are Heart-shaped. Yeah. So I bought that box, and I pulled one out this morning, and I took it to my wife, and here you go. (laughs) Here you go. A little reminder of all the good times we had yesterday, right? Yeah. So, yes. You know, I think of that song we just sang, uh, and we may need to sing a chorus of it again, you know, do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me, because the flood story is about God remembering human beings. That's that's its line. And uh, there's a symbol in the flood story of God's continual care for us, as we will see. And looking at Genesis chapter 8, and yes, there are some times that I don't read through all kinds of biblical texts, but I do like to hear the Bible read at church, and so this is chapter 8 that we are looking at today, uh, as well as chapter 9, but selected portions of that. But chapter 8 has so, such an interesting storyline to it that I, I like to include it. It says, but God remembered Noah but not just Noah, and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat. He sent a wind to blow across the earth, and the floodwaters began to recede. The underground waters were closed, and the torrential rains from the sky were restrained. So the floodwaters gradually receded from the earth. Gradually, the water receded from the earth, and by the end of 150 days, it had abated. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the the ark grounded on the mountains of Ararat. The water continued to abate until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the peaks of the mountains could be seen. After another 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the boat and released raven. The bird flew back and forth until the floodwaters on the earth had dried up. And you're supposed to read this like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth it flew. Wow. He also released a dove to see if the water had receded and, and it could find dry ground. But the dove could find no place to land because the water still covered the ground. And so it returned to the boat, and Noah held out his hand and drew the dove back inside. After waiting another seven days, by the way, let's back up just a minute. So Noah sticks out his hand. All right, come on, back up. There we go. So Noah sticks out his hand. Did he have to do that? I mean, couldn't the bird have just flown right in or landed on the windowsill? It reminds me of some of the small things that Jesus did when he would touch people and stuff. After waiting another seven days, Noah released the dove again. And this time, the dove returned to him in the evening with a fresh olive leaf in its beak. Then Noah knew that the floodwaters were almost gone. He waited another seven days and then released the dove again. This time, it did not come back. Noah was now 601 years old. And on the first day of the new year, the flood waters had almost dried up from the earth. Noah lifted back the covering of the boat and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, And your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh. Birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. And every animal, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out of the ark by families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice, and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. Even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood, I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. This verse alone offers us a, a kind of incredible promise. It does also depict our reality, not the reality of the pre-flood days, right? The pre-flood days probably did not have a lot of cold temperatures. But nevertheless, it reflects both our reality and this wonderful promise that there is a continuity going on, that you and I can enjoy certain things. Uh, This time of year, one of the things that I enjoy in Walla Walla usually is the rise of crocuses. Any of you seen any? Right? My mom and I were out walking the other day, and she's, oh, look, looks like some daffodils are coming up. I like to see these things come up through the seasons. And, of course, my wife's favorite time of the year is spring. Uh, And so she gets excited whenever it begins to look like, you know, it could be nearing spring. Well, the calendar notations scattered throughout the flood story, I find them remarkable, actually, because they look like this. We call this, by the way, uh, a chiasm, a mirrored imaging, uh, reverse parallelism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, There are seven days of waiting, and then seven days of waiting again, and then 40 days of water increasing, and then 150 days of the waters prevailing. And then we find the phrase, God remembered Noah and all the animals. And then we find another 150 days, this time of the waters decreasing. 40 days of the waters decreasing, 7 days of waiting, and 7 days of waiting. Now that's an interesting pattern, don't you think? Now just out of curiosity, and, and I want some feedback from you, why do you think it took so long? I mean, couldn't God have speeded things up a bit? A lot, water. a lot of water? Okay. Okay. Yeah, God's hands aren't short, he says. I mean, how many of you have ever hired somebody who's a professional cleaner to come take water out of your house? That'd be me. I've done it more than once, actually. They get the job done pretty quick. You know, yeah, it takes a while for the fans to dry all the carpet and all that stuff, but the water, for the most part, is gone. Why do you think it took God so long? Why did God let this thing go on like this? And why do you think this this pattern shows up? Anybody? Take a stab. Somebody. I think God likes mathematics and he likes patterns. Okay. That's one thing. I'd agree. Probably does. Lots of things are built on mathematical principles in the world, right? Yeah, uh, waiting does make us appreciate uh, lots of things. When you see this kind of patterning, isn't it true that the, the bottom part of the pattern is reversing the entire top part? And wasn't that God's intent to reverse it? Right? To set everything in motion so that the world would get back to normal? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I agree. Yes. So, some of the things that we can learn from the length of this this event, the length of this event would be what? What can we learn from that? Patience. Patience. Yeah. One of the things we learn is that God doesn't miraculously. Reverse everything. Is that true? So some of you have had some health issues. You've broken a bone or two. You know I have. Did you heal just like that? No. The natural processes that God created, they kick in. How long does it take... uh, the the floodwaters to decrease. Well, in this case, pretty much the same time it took for them to appear. Now, we are speeding things up as best we can in Waitsburg, in Pendleton, but, you know, when it comes to the ground itself, do you think anybody's going to go out there? I'm talking about the grassy ground and that, you know, you think anybody's going to go out there with a big vacuum cleaner, suck that up? What are they going to do? just let it do its thing right so uh, we get this you know extended chronological report to remind us that uh, you know God is patient he wants us to be patient it's true but also that things are now going to take place naturally We read this particular verse, and it says, uh, On the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark grounded on the mountains of Ararat. And it seems to me like the uh, seventeenth day of the seventh month, that's about as specific as you can get, you know, unless you want to add minutes and hours, you know, kind of thing. On the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark rested, Now, did you notice that it lacks some specificity when it comes to where it grounded? It's very specific as to the day, but not so specific as to the place. What does it say? On the mountains of Ararat. Why didn't God just tell us which mountain it landed on? I mean, you know, he went to all the trouble of telling us the exact day. Why not tell us exactly where? Okay, people have looked for it, and looked for it, and looked for it, and lots of them have even claimed to have found it, and so far I don't know that it's shown up in a museum anywhere, uh, in all honesty, Um, though I've seen lots of videos. I've even spoken with somebody who went on a search for Ararat and was the photographer for the event. I knew him personally. Um, Yet here's the incredible part. Human beings have a tendency to worship the incredible things that they find. Is that true? And turn into worship sites, the places where said events occur. You ever wondered why the Bible doesn't tell us exactly where God himself buried Moses? Why he doesn't tell us the exact site the ark landed? Because we human beings tend to worship things other than God. It's really strange how we do it, but we do. Uh, And I think here God's being very deliberate. Here's the day all this occurred, but not the place. I I don't want you to know the place. And the amazing part of it is I think most of us Christians would agree, boy, we sure wish the thing would be found because it would be such wonderful confirmation, right? And that's why we put out all these expeditions and people have paid their money. But if God wanted it found... It would have been found long ago. Apparently, God doesn't feel we have such a need to find it. Hmm. Something to think about. And then, of course, we read this strange sequence of events. Noah repeatedly uses birds to ascertain if the earth has become dry. Why does he do this? Why? Is he cabin fever? Has he got cabin fever? I would. I mean, whether he did or not, I would have. Um, Why does he do it? Why doesn't he just, how about this? Why doesn't God just give him progress reports? Water's dropped down a foot, foot, another foot, another foot, another foot. Why doesn't God give him progress reports? (laughs) Okay. And that is because Noah could build it, right? And his kids. He could build it. If Noah wanted to have progress reports, Noah had the means available to get them. Without miraculous, you know, happening, all he had to do was keep sending the birds out. And he had lots of birds to send. He could keep sending them out until one of them came back, gave him the information he wanted. Now, of course, what's interesting is that, you know, what does this say to us about God and about our everyday life? He does not do for us what we can do for ourselves. That's what you're saying, right? Yes. He gives us wisdom. It did take a little thinking on Noah's part. How am I going to handle this? You can't send out a, you know, certain creatures to go out there because they won't come back. They'll drown, right? Yeah, Lynn. Yeah, And that would be trouble, uh, particularly if the rain had still been coming down, right? Or if there had been stages or spurts of it, yeah, the boat had filled up, and that wouldn't be good. It'd be miserable for everybody, if not dangerous. So what does this tell us about our everyday life? I mean, uh, by the way, isn't it true that they did not leave the ark until God said go? I mean, he got the progress reports. He knew it was dry, But he did not leave the ark till God said go, which is incredible. Yeah, a lot of people watch television and they assume that picking locks is done in mere seconds and it's easy and people do it with bobby pins and nothing more and all that kind of thing. And I'm here to tell you it isn't easy and they don't do it like that. Uh, And I have had plenty of times, 17 years as a locksmith, I've had plenty of times where I can tell you honestly, kneeling in front of that door, trying to pick this lock that will not, you know, allow me to overcome it. And me sending up another desperate prayer, God, please help me. I want to get this door open for these people. And God always with the same answer, practice. (laughs) Practice. Okay, I don't like boring practice. Picking locks is boring after a while. It's boring. It's boring. Um, Practice. Hmm. Yet uh, none of these, none of these people, none of these critters left until God said go. Yeah. The one well, that's very possible. Yes. Uh, I, although you know we could always ask ourselves, you know, is it possible that with the size of some of those critters, they could have done anything? But no, it does appear that God closed them in. And maybe sealed it up. I don't know. So these kinds of things teach us some things about God in our everyday life. God cared for them, but there were certain things they didn't do. By the way, do, do, do you see any message in there where God said to Noah, send out the birds? No, right? Yeah, let's go to. Well, it's up near the top, whether it's in the very top or near the top. I mean, this one is Yeah, I'm I'm sure it could have been difficult. Yeah. Perhaps getting a bit how long to be and Yeah. So, you know, one of the things you discover when you read through the Bible stories is that uh, you know, uh when they were getting ready to take the promised land, somebody sent spies in. And sometimes we get the idea, you know, that God was the one completely behind that. But when you keep reading in the Bible, you will find uh, Moses saying something like this to the people. You told me to send them in. Okay. <laughs> God may have governed uh, that what was going on, but it doesn't mean it was his idea. Perhaps this was simply Noah's idea. He was getting a little cabin fever, you know, needed to find out how things were going. Um, I don't know, but it's interesting to think about. We come to this verse, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. And even though the translation I read you put the words even though, I will never again curse the ground even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil. The words can also mean something like for or because and have a causal understanding, which, is, which means like this. I will never again curse the ground because everything these humans think or imagine is bent toward evil from the time they're born. Uh, help me out here. If it's causal, what does that mean? I mean, would you, would you um, never again do something to curtail the bad someone else is doing um, because you know they're evil from the time they're born? That's some pretty powerful grace happening there. Uh, paradoxical, I think, is the word that we would use. Because it's going to mean something like, because or in spite of. Uh, I will never again curse the ground in spite of everything they think or imagine being bent toward evil. From the time their birth. Or maybe before uh, birth. Hmm. Something to think about. And then there's this promise. It's a list of what we call a merism. Saying something from A to Z, you know. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. How does this verse offer us hope? How does it offer you hope? Okay, yeah, very good. Well stated, right? Someone else, how does it give you hope? It doesn't, you know, control the problems that we have, though, right? I mean, in terms of making sure none of them ever occur, that's for sure. We still have, you know, climate issues. That's definitely true. Um, So, as long as the earth remains, does that little phrase offer you any hope? Because it's suggesting, actually, in the Hebrew it says... All the days of the earth, implying that the earth is going to run out of days. And what's going to happen at the end of earth's history? Well, Jesus is going to return, right? So if we move into Genesis chapter 9, we find this often misunderstood, I think, verse, which reads like this. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. There are a couple of phrases in this verse. I've heard people use this verse. I can eat anything, anything. I mean, look, doesn't the verse tell me I can eat anything? Do you notice this verse first says, you can eat everything that lives. You see, what difference does that make? Well, according to the Bible, you cannot eat things that died. Either naturally, they just fell over dead. You know, maybe from old age or some disease. You're not to eat it. Or if it was, uh, you know, what today we often call, whether it died in the road or not, roadkill. God says, don't eat it. I mean, Look at this verse. And you shall be holy to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. Exodus 22, 31. He shall not eat an animal which dies or is torn, becoming unclean by it. I am the Lord. Leviticus 22, verse 8. Here it seems as if God is... Already referring to things as if Noah and all his family know all there is to know about clean and unclean meats, about the fact that they shouldn't, you know, be eating critters that have died already, uh, you know, due to some health problem or been torn apart by some beast and maybe not eaten. They are not to eat that kind of stuff, right? But then it goes on to say, and just as I gave you the green plants, so help me out. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. What were Adam and Eve told they could eat? Nice and loud. Everything. But. Isn't that right? Everything that was a green plant, seed-bearing plant, they could eat. But. There was a but there, right? Just as I gave you the green plant qualifies what God now allows humans to eat as well. God excluded the tree of the knowledge of good and evil then, and he has exclusions now. This verse contains some important qualifiers, but there's even more. If you read the story as it stands, you'll find this correspondence. There's a discussion of the clean and unclean animals that were to go onto the ark, and then a discussion of Noah and his family and the animals entering the ark, and then Noah exiting the ark, And then diet. It's like they correspond to each other. It's as if we are to read with the presumption that Noah was very aware of the classification of clean and unclean animals. This distinction went way beyond sacrificial legislation we find in Moses' day. In essence, God wants us to choose our food wisely. There is a little bit more if we keep reading too, right? But you must never eat any meat that still has the life blood in it. This is the only dietary law in scripture that offers a reason why you should obey it. You should not eat meat with blood in it because that blood is its life. It contains its life. It contains its whole living process, as it were. Everything that that critter go, goes through and experiences in life is going to be impact. Is going to impact its blood. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Now, what's interesting is if you go on and read Leviticus chapter 7:26, you'll find that this verse actually only applies to um, animals and birds. It doesn't include fish, or by the way, locusts, because their blood system is entirely different. This also confirms that Noah lived his life according to the same dietary laws that we will later read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and other places. The New Testament book of of Acts chapter 15 uh, says that these laws, not eating meat with blood in it, were passed on to the Gentiles, which means still in effect, right, for us today. Nowhere in the Bible is this verse erased. It doesn't apply, if you're wondering, to blood transfusions. Ingesting blood is different than injecting it straight into your veins. Your body handles it differently. Um, it's an interesting passage. But then it goes on to say, whoever sheds the blood of a human by a human, shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image God made humankind, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. One of the things that I've always found amazing is how often people have gotten into huge arguments regarding whether or not this verse is prescriptive or descriptive. Meaning, does it tell us we ought to put to death people who murder other people? Uh, And then, of course, there's the presumption that it involves murder and murder only. Uh, That's another presumption I'm not sure is, is supportable by Scripture. But most importantly, what I found in here is the reason given for not taking another person's life. And what is that reason? Because they were made in the image of God. Didn't we just read that these people were incredibly violent? They were so violent that violence spread throughout the entire earth. They were mean and nasty to each other. Yet God says, don't kill them because they are made in my image. Boy, he's awfully nice. And then, of course, one of the things that we often forget, and in fact, sometimes you don't even see it in a particular translation of the Bible, even though I think you should, is this little phrase, and as for you, all this talk, don't kill. Don't shed any blood. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to promote life. I want you to promote life, he tells Noah and his family instead. Well, God went on to say, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants and with all the animals. God makes a promise to the animals. Uh, there's an interesting thing uh, right there. Uh, This is that promise, right? But then he goes on to say, when I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. You know, we started out, we talked about a symbol that uh, we often give to each other around this time of year, right? And here is that. Simple. It's a heart. It can be a box of chocolates like this, or it can be... uh, small as an individual cheerio. It's a symbol of love and care. The symbol that God gave to each one of us and is still here for us today is a rainbow. Beautiful, beautiful thing, right? This rainbow is the sign, the symbol of the covenant I am confirming with all the creatures on earth, including you and me. Do you know that every time, and this is the interesting part, every time God sees the rainbow, he remembers you. Now, we're not saying he ever forgot you. It's an idiomatic expression, but nevertheless, every time God sees the rainbow, he thinks of you. So when you get that heart-shaped thing and you know that you know, your loved one cares about you. The interesting part is your loved one also knows that they care about you. That's why they got it for you, right? Yeah. Amidst all of our challenges and struggle here on earth, do we recall this verse and, and believe that it applies to us? Every time we see a rainbow, do we think about God meeting our needs to have this physical sign that he has remembered us. What does it say about God that he would offer us such a sign? Because surely he never has forgotten us. We need that reminder. And yet he even humbles himself and says, well, every time I see it, I want you to know I'm thinking of you. Why would God speak so carefully about what we human beings should eat because he wants to maximize our lives, right? Why would he direct us not to kill others but instead to promote life? Because he wants us to live a good life. And why would he offer us the rainbow as a sign of his care, even going so far as to say, well, I remember you whenever I see it. Why would God choose to use such humbling language. As Noah's family took up the daunting challenge of making their way on a, on a new, new world almost, vastly, vastly changed world, I wonder how they felt each time they saw that rainbow. I wonder if they stopped and prayed each time. Humbling themselves and maybe recommitting their lives to God. Do you and I often forget, you know, as we go through a little bit of our rainy season, that God cares about us, and every time we see a rainbow, we should be reminded that God at that moment is thinking of us? That's the message of this particular sign. Let's pray. Father God. Thank you so much for giving us rainbows. Not only are they beautiful, but they do remind us that you are caring about us individually and collectively. That you want the very best for our lives. That you don't want us to hurt others. You want us instead to help them. Father, would you work in our hearts and and help us to become the people you want us to be? People who are also caring, willing to go out and do what we can to make others' lives better.